Please take your Bibles at this time and turn to the book of Ezra, in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra. So this afternoon, the intention is to have a season of prayer together, and so we'll come to the Word at this time. We'll pray then for a season, looking to the Lord for His grace. In the book of Ezra and the chapter 8, I'm going to read a short reading from the verse number 21. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Of course, Ezra is writing here, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of him a right way for us, and for our little ones, and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's seek God's face once more, asking for God's help me come around the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time together to refresh our souls in your word to fellowship together around the Word and prayer today. Thank you for the opportunity to begin this new year in such a fashion that as a congregation we can afresh express our need, our need for Thee, the Almighty God, to work amongst us. So grant us grace. May the Word of God come with freshness to our minds. May these very simple thoughts, may they motivate us to pray, to seek Thy face afresh today. We do ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if some of you are about to embark upon a new Bible reading program uh, this year, perhaps setting yourself to read the Bible through in a year. Well, if that is the case, remember that as you read the Bible, you're reading the account of the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. The Bible is not organized in a haphazard fashion. It's put together very deliberately from Genesis, the book of beginnings, to Revelation at the end when we see the consummation of all of God's purposes. These things are deliberate. And so you see all the way through the Bible, you see the outworking of God's plan of redemption. In essence, in simple terms, God has planned and purposed to save a people through the work of His Son. That's God's plan, to save people through the work of His Son. And the Bible records the years and the centuries of how that plan is worked out. We see God's plan being developed in various years. The Bible, in essence, is an account of redemptive history. And within that one single covenant of grace, God's people have different duties and different responsibilities at different times. You think of the various prominent figures in the Bible, and you see how their tasks and their duties varied. Joseph, faithful to God in Egypt to preserve the line of Shem and Israel, out of whom would come the Messiah. Moses was the one who's faithful in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land, again from which would come the Christ. Joshua, Faithful to God and bringing the people across the Jordan into their inheritance. Gideon, Samson, the judges, faithful to God in defeating the enemies in Israel. David and Solomon, 
faithful to God in establishing and extending the kingdom. These things, they come one after the other in God's purposes in redemptive history. You then have that lengthy time of history after David and Solomon, the time of the kings, and of course those tragic times of declension in the northern kingdom, followed by the Assyrian captivity, and then declension in the southern kingdom, leading into the Babylonian captivity. And now, in God's purpose, as we come today to look at this book of Ezra, Ezra in Bible history comes alongside two other individuals, namely Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. And these three men were faithful in returning the chastised exiles back to the land. Each of these people, from Joseph to Ezra, faithful to God in advancing the redemptive purposes of the Lord. But at each period, the duties of the people of God were distinct. They had their own job to do at their own time. And thus, we've got to be careful when we come to the Old Testament that we properly and carefully apply these historical narratives. One person's duty is not necessarily our duty in our day. And so we must ask ourselves the question, well, where are we in the timeline of redemptive history? You should ask yourself that question. Where do you fit? Where does this church fit in God's redemptive history timeline? Well, of course, we find ourselves in the period following Pentecost. In that waiting period, waiting for Christ to return in His glory. And thus, our duty finds itself expressed in the various ways of the Gospels and Acts in terms of what we know as the Great Commission, that we are to go. We are to make disciples. We are to preach the Gospel. We're to gather people into local churches. We're to baptize them and teach them to walk in the commands of Christ. We are living in the age of the church, whereby we have to ensure that we're faithful to our God-given responsibilities. I say all this because I think it's important as this new year begins that we remind ourselves that primarily we come to pray over this purpose. Our prayer meetings must have a redemptive focus first and foremost. It is right and proper to pray for sickness and health, to pray compassion upon God's people. But ultimately, and I don't say this in a way to diminish the seriousness of life, but ultimately we are all getting older day by day and we're all going to die unless Christ returns. And so our prayers for God's people in the church are prayers of compassion. But the gospel and the kingdom of Christ will never die. God's ultimate purpose for his church is not that we live forever in this life, but that we live forever in the life to come. And keeping that focus in mind, I think, should govern how we pray in our prayer meetings. That there should be this increasing burden for the kingdom to come in the lives of souls. This increasing burden for sinners to be brought under conviction. This increasing burden for the gospel to go forward with power. These are things we should pray about for mission fields, for local churches, for God's word to advance in the age. Please understand, we have a lengthy prayer list of needs in our bulletin. I haven't deleted that and I have no intention of deleting that. I'm just saying that when we come together to pray as a church, we ought to remind ourselves where we sit in God's purposes and redemption. And so as you look today at Ezra chapter 8, and we think of the principles of God's Word, we do learn things. We learn things regarding how God does work 
But we do so looking through God's duties for Ezra. And then, well, how does that apply to our duties today? Well, I'm not going to go through all the details of the setting here. But this chapter details the second wave of people to return to the land after the decree of Cyrus. It's a wave of returning exiles. Again, back in chapter 2 of Ezra, you have the first company who returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and the temple rebuilding process begins. This chapter refers to the company who returned in the presence of Ezra. There's then a third company who come along with Nehemiah. There are these three waves of exiles who return under these three different leaders. And so Ezra is leading the people in God's providential care. If you like, all the way my Savior leads me. And Ezra's leading the people in the leading of God. And he's leading in obedience to the commands of God, fulfilling the promise that God gave to Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah, you're going to be punished 70 years, and then you'll be brought back to the land Ezra is God's man to lead the people at this time back into the land. But he realizes that such a task is beyond him. And so verse number 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for little ones and for all our substance. This is a prayer, in essence, for spiritual progress. It's a prayer for the advance of God's purpose and cause. He's asking for God to lead the people on in his will. And in that regard, there are certainly things we can learn regarding our duties today as we would pray for spiritual progress. First of all, please note that God's purpose is progress despite the presence of enemies. God's purpose is progress. You'll see that in your outline. You have that in the bulletin there. God's purpose is progress despite the presence of enemies. Verse 22 refers to this. I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Now we're going to come back to verse 21. They're seeking a right way for us. But you'll note that in the way they're seeking, there are enemies in the way, verse 22. Verse 31 says this. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go unto Jerusalem, and the hand of our goes upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such as lay and wait by the way. It's a literal pathway. They're, they're going in a literal journey, making their way to Jerusalem in obedience to the commands of God, and there are enemies in the way. There were those in Ezra's day and in Nehemiah's day who do not want the people to return. They don't want the temple rebuilt. They don't want the walls rebuilt. We read about all of their devices. At times they're subtle. At other times they are overt. And indeed they are physical in their opposition to the people of God. Here the concern is that the party may be abused by those who lie in wait there are those who are seeking to bring harm to God's people. They seem to be lying in wait, by the way, verse number 31. But then as what they're trying to do, basically, is they're trying to stop God's work progressing. We've got to be careful, of course, again, to be careful to identify accurately enemies in our own present gospel age. The enemies in our day are not spiritual, or not physical, sorry, but are spiritual but spiritual enemies that may in turn appear in physical forms. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians chapter 6. And thus our weapons that we war, they are not physical, but they are spiritual, not carnal, but mighty under God. Our enemies are chiefly those, and we've discussed this before, when we think of the armor of God in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, the enemies of God's people under Satan's rule are those who seek to promote deception and doubt. The devil's two great aims, that God's people would live in doubt and that they'd be deceived regarding the truth of God. That's the attack we find ourselves against. And so you go through the story of the New Testament. Satan enters Peter and Peter comes to deny the necessity of the atonement. Acts 15, Galatians, the Judaizers come and attack justification. Philippians chapter 3, the enemies of the cross attack sanctification. 1 Timothy 4 attacks on Christian liberty. 1 and 2 John attacks on Christ's humanity. There are various attacks against the Lord's people in the New Testament that come against truth and against righteousness. But what you see is that when error is promoted, there is an accompanying moral degrade. These things always come together. You cause people to believe a lie and they'll live the lie. And we find ourselves living in a time when doctrinal errors have been embraced for a century, and we now find ourselves facing the moral confusion in light of such doctrinal compromise. I think we should confront the reality here. As a church, we must give up on any hope of being popular popular and acceptable. We cannot be liked in this world any longer. I'm not suggesting that we should be obnoxious and become dislikable. We ought to be winsome in our ways, harmless as doves. But if we are faithful and we stand up for those things we believe, we're pro-marriage and pro-life and ultimately pro-Christ, we will stand against the tide of this world, a world that is increasing in its opposition to the gospel. And churches that seek to pursue popularity by compromise will fail. They will not be popular, and they will not be faithful, and they will not advance the cause of the gospel. And so we've got to realize that if we're to progress in this world in this year, we will do so against the world, not by having the favor of the world. Our responsibility is to be faithful, faithful to truth and faithful to the word of God. And therefore, as we progress, we must progress in the presence of enemies. If we're faithful... There will be those who will be against us. And so what? Well, remember what I've just said. God's purposes progress despite the presence of enemies. The enemies are not removed, but God's people are delivered from the influence of those enemies. And so be encouraged. Don't look at the world around and think to yourself, well, how can, I, how can I be more liked in the world? Just simply accept the fact there are enemies against the gospel and go forward regardless. Secondly, God's purposes progress through the power of God. It's so obvious, isn't it? But verse number 22 makes the point. But we see where Ezra's hope lay. He doesn't want to seek help from the king regarding getting soldiers and horsemen because of the honor and the testimony of God. They've said to the king, the hand of God's upon them. And to trust in man is to undermine that testimony that God alone is to be relied upon. 
Ezra so concerned for the glory of God and that the glory of God be advanced that he refused the help of the king. Now, it's worth noting that it would not inevitably be sinful to get help from the king. After all, didn't Cyrus give much assistance in the first move of the people of God back from the captivity? But Ezra, some suggest perhaps 80 years later, has been clear that God's hand was upon them and that he was determined that God would be seen to have all the glory in their safe journeys. There are two principles which abide upon this particular principle. First of all, the purpose of God does not depend upon man. God does use means. But God is the ultimate mover in the progress of the kingdom. Turn across to the 60th Psalm, please. The Psalm 60. If we're going to pray aright, we must understand this. If we're going to pray prayers that honor God, we must have within our hearts the conviction that God alone is the one who can advance his work. You see this consistent theme, Psalm 60, verse number 10. Wilt not thy, O God, which hath cast us off, and thy, O God, which did not go out with our armies, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for it is he that shall tread down our enemies. That sense of faith and conviction. You might hear me often, I'll often pray in a prayer meeting night and a Wednesday night, I'll pray for God to give us faith to pray. You see, the prayers that please God are the prayers that are coming from faith. And faith ultimately has to have this sense that God alone is the one who can progress the work of His name. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord or God. Of course, in New Testament terms, this comes to your height in Paul's first letter to Corinth. Turn across 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just going to read a selection of verses here that again emphasize the fact that as God's work in Ezra's day progressed only by God, so God's work in Corinth's day progresses because of the work of God. Does God use men? Of course. Does God use instruments? Of course. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 27. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and the base things of the world and things that are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declare unto you the testament of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear, much trembling, my speech, not in enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was studiously careful to make sure they understood that the progress of the gospel was only in the power of God's. Churches are full of ideas and inventions. What can we do to make this more pleasing? What can we do to advance the cause? It's the power of God that advances the cause. Our duty is to be faithful to preach Christ and Him crucified and allow God to then bring the increase. Because over in chapter 3, he does make it clear that use means Paul plants and Paul's waters, but it is God that gives the increase. And so the purposes of God 
do not depend upon man, but they depend, secondly, upon the hand of God, the power of God. We saw this morning the reference to God's arm in Isaiah is a reference to God's power, and similar language is used regarding the hand of God. But you go back to Ezra chapter 8, and you see the reference there in verse 20, 22. Again, if you want to do something uh, this evening before bedtime, you could do a word search a uh, phrase search on Ezra and Nehemiah on the references to the hand of God. These terms, the hand of God for good, comes repeatedly in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they come together with this testimony. It is the hand of God that we depend upon. And so verse 22, he says to the king, the hand of God is upon them for good that seek him. It is God's hand that must move for God's people to go forward. The hand of God speaks of God's active involvement in our affairs. We might talk about God having a hands-on approach to his work. He's not distant. He's intimately involved. You know the CEO of a great business, and you get a CEO, he's got a hands-on approach. He, he gets down and, and works in the business. He's not distant. Well, Christ is the ultimate hands-on worker in his church. Mark chapter 16, they go forward, the Lord working with them. The hand of God at work in his work. Speaks of God's active working. Hand is that which moves and works. Speaks of the power of God's active working. He's a powerful God with a powerful hand. A strong right hand working in the things of God. You see, we must understand here that as we, pursue, as we look at this particular point in redemptive history, we're seeing principles, God's purposes advance, not through the ingenuity of man, not through the strength of man, but through the power of God. We must not look to man for the progress of the church and the kingdom. God, be so careful in this. You know, we, we understand that this nation particularly is really struggling for a lack of good government. And so properly, and please understand what I say, properly we pray for God to raise up godly leaders and godly rulers. We, we want a, a God-honoring governor, a God-honoring president. We, we want these things in the nation. We'd be foolish not to want these things. But you must be careful that you don't presume in your mind, if we have the right governor, then the kingdom will advance. If we have the right president, then the kingdom will advance. Having a godly man leading in some way in the affairs of state is a tremendous blessing from God. But that does not guarantee the advance of the gospel. The gospel advances through the power of the preaching of the word. And we must be careful that we don't trust in horses and chariots. But remember the name of the Lord our God. So understand the balance in that. Christians should desire these things. But we must not, if you like, ask the king for a soldier and horseman to keep us against the enemy. We must seek the Lord our God. For the hand of God is good, is good upon them that seek him. Thirdly, finally, God's purpose is progressed by means of the prayers of his people. When you put all this together, the recognition of the presence of enemies, and you realize that God's purpose is progressed through the power of God, not on man, but on God's, then surely there is the necessity of prayer. Prayer whereby we plead for the help of God. You see, we learn so much in this chapter regarding the activity of prayer. See the action of prayer, first of all. 
verse 21, to seek God. We might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones. Seeking God. Seeking the face of God. Seek the Lord and his strength, Psalm 105. Or perhaps quickly turn to Psalm 27. You see, to seek God is to seek his grace, Psalm 27. In verse number 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou said, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, or will I seek? Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God, of my salvation. It's a desire for God's mercy and for God's strength. And so again, in Ezra chapter 8, Ezra says, We're going to seek the Lord. We're going to seek of God a right way. And he beseeches the Lord. The same word is used. Again, verse number 22. The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. And that is of beseeching the Lord. Verse 23. So we fasted and besought our God for this. This is the action of God. and This is the action of man in prayer. We plead with God for his grace and for his strength. When we come to pray, we must be purposeful. Prayer meetings are a challenge. Hard to focus. Hard to concentrate. Hard to really lay hold upon God consistently for a time. Remember our chief end is to get God in prayer. Remember that consistently. And you come to the point where you realize, I cannot do this in a vain fashion. Can't do it in a way that is trivial. I'm here to seek God. And we do so with the attitude of prayer, which is humility. Again, he refers in verse 21 to afflicting themselves and also in fasting in verse number 23. I'm not going to get into the details of fasting here, but fasting is an, out, an outward, an external manifestation of an internal reality. You don't fast for fasting's sake. Fasting is an external reflection of a desire to afflict our souls and to humble ourselves before God. Listen to the words of Psalm 35 and the verse number 13 where it says this. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. This reference to fasting and afflicting themselves in Ezra is a reference to seeking to humble themselves before God. We don't come before God as those who pretend we deserve the favor of God. We come before God as those who know we don't deserve the favor of God. We've got to humble ourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, on the mighty hand of God, casting all your care upon him, 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, thirdly, the content of our prayers. If we come to seek God in humility, well, what do we pray for? That's a tremendous little phrase here, verse number 21. Seek of him a right way for us. This is not speaking of right as in morally right. That, that of course, is good. But rather the right way is a straight way. It's a picture of a way without obstacles. He's seeking a right way for them and for their children and for their substance. It's a way without barriers, without obstacles, into the will of God. The same language is used 
by the servant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 24. I bowed down my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way. Smooth progress in the will of God. He's able to get to the right place to find the wife. Smooth, straightforward. Same is referred to in Psalm 107. He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation, the right way, the straight way, the way without obstacles. I wonder, does Paul think of those terms when he asked for prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. The ideas of running freely without barrier or without obstacle. This is a good prayer for us. Seek of God our right way for us, for our churches, for our missionaries, for our denomination, that the word of God in our day will advance without obstacle and without barrier, that we'll be delivered from our enemies, we'll see the gospel progress for the glory of God's name. We want God to give us a right way. The right way for his word. You see, God is pleased to answer this prayer. You have it there in verse 31. The hand of God was upon them. He did deliver them from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. He gave them a right way. Ezra, of course, is writing reflectively. What a blessing to look back and see God answering prayer. Be my desire today that we pray earnestly to God that he gives a right way. And then, as this year in God's will will draw to a close if Christ tarries, we can look back and say, Lord, you've given us a right way. You've answered our prayers. The gospel has advanced for the glory of God's name. Pray much for these things. As God put them upon your heart, please, be earnest in prayer today that God's blessing would rest upon our church for the glory of the Son of God.